welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. This week, we're taking you down to the South, me and Laura. Yes. So this is a crazy case. It is. So what do we have this week, Sarah? So we've got the Esther Reed case. So in the early morning hours of July 4th, 1999, 20-year-old Brooke Henson disappeared after leaving a party at her house. This was in a place called Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. This is a tiny little stopover town. Yeah, this is a place if you blink, you'd miss it, Sarah, driving yeah. by. I mean, like we're a whistle- small town. It's like a whistle-stop town. So, And also, Brooke was a typical small-town girl. She really was. I mean, she liked her friend. She wasn't too academic, Sarah. She had dropped out of high school in 10th grade, and unfortunately, she had a boyfriend who I would call kind of bad news. Yeah, his name was Ricky Sean Shirley, and I think that sort of says the, uh, I'm just going to say that name one more time, Ricky Sean (laughs) Shirley. Should we say it in a Southern accent, Laura? I don't know, but you know what? He is your central casting small town bad boy. He's got tattoos, he's got long hair, he plays a guitar. You can kind of see like the local high school girls, the traveler rest high school girls just having a real crush on Ricky. Right, and I think it's important to mention that he had a criminal record, so we're not just stereotyping him because of the outside. I mean, he really had been involved in some some bad stuff. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and he also, you know, he was 10 years, Brooks Sr., and they had a really volatile relationship. They would fight a lot. I think you had some alcohol and drugs in the mix. And so, you know, let's just say it, not what you really would call a healthy relationship. And that's where we find ourselves on July 4th when Brooke decides to have a get-together with some friends and Ricky and her parents are actually at an Allman Brothers concert that night. So she's just, you know, having 4th of July, fireworks, beer kind of party. No big deal. And her and Ricky wind up getting in a fight. And it's fight over a girl. Big surprise. I really feel like we're in a country western song right now. Right. And I think this is kind of typical for them to fight. And at two o'clock in the morning, when Brooke's parents come home, they find her sitting on the front stairs and she's upset, Sarah. And she tells her mother she's going to go on a walk and get some cigarettes. And this would probably be a couple blocks away. Yeah. And I'm picturing this as kind of like the small town Cumberland Farms type of place that you walk to. It's a couple of blocks away. She's just going to pick up a pack of smokes and come home. Mom is like, I don't think it's a good idea. And unfortunately, Brooke just disappears. Yeah, she goes to get those cigarettes and she never returns. So Ricky has spent the night at her house, but he also quickly becomes the main person of interest. 
We do find out that Brooke had left a note for Ricky prior to going to get those cigarettes, didn't she, Sarah? Yeah, and it says, going for a walk, follow me if you care. And she never comes back. So really, as we said, Ricky becomes the main person of interest. In the case, they find no body. They drag the rivers. They, they look around. You're talking about deep country, basically. Deep woods, deep country. They never find Brooke. They never find Brooke. But also in 1999, another woman would go missing. Her name was Esther Reed. Esther and Brooke's paths would cross in the next six years, which would lead to a national manhunt. So who was Esther Reed? She was also a small town girl, born in 1978 in Townsend, Montana. Esther Elizabeth Reed from an early age, Sarah, she didn't want to be Esther Reed. She was remarkably intelligent. But unfortunately, her life took a nosedive after her parents' divorce and her mother's death from cancer in 1998. And after getting caught stealing a co-worker's purse and fleecing her own sister, Esther fled Montana and went underground. You get the sense that she was a very smart woman. Very smart. And she had had these sort of tragedies in her life. And she had aspirations. And so she had this purse stealing on her record. And she just kind of wanted to start over. And so she moves to the Seattle area. And her family's wondering what the hell had happened to her. They don't hear from her. They do for a little while, and then she just drops off the radar. And they even wondered if she had become one of the countless victims of the then uncaptured Green River Killer. I think it's fascinating because Esther really did what so many people want to do, which is shed their past and reinvent herself. Yep, that's right. So what's her first move, Sarah? (laughs) So she steals the identity of her boyfriend's sister, and she became Natalie Fisher. So basically, this is her, but she also does something more. She really transforms herself at this point. Absolutely. And maybe we should describe a little bit prior to this, she had been overweight not super attractive, kind of shy, and she really does trend. She loses weight. Right. She starts running. She gets some plastic surgery. I think she even gets like breast she implants. She gets breast implants. And it, she even looks to me like maybe her face gets a little bit slimmer, but it almost seems like she's got a little plastic surgery on her face too, but maybe not. I don't know. How does she afford all this? She's a runaway from a small town in Montana. She's working on a new scam. This is wild. It's wild. She's using her intelligence on a new scam. And so she's forging JCPenney receipts. Let's say you go in and you buy a computer from JCPenney or some big ticket item. She was so good at forging that she would forge the amount for much more than she had paid for it. So she was getting thousands of dollars back. It just takes some like moxie, some intelligence and some... I've worked in retail for a long time, Sarah. And I mean, this is hard to do and to get cash back. And, And she did this for tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, she was able to do this, which surprises me that she was able to get away with this for so long. But she was pretty savvy in in this area. And she was able to do this. And she does. She completely reinvents herself. We'll post pictures. She kind of goes from this shy, dumpy looking girl to this, I would say, cute co-ed. Well, she also forges her own identity, her own documents. She becomes Natalie Fisher. 
Her next scam would take her into college and even on to the Ivy League. She starts to make some plans for herself, Sarah. She does. She wants to become a lawyer. She wants to go to Harvard. But really, how does one do this as a high school dropout with a criminal record? Well, first you take the GED under your new identity, which is what she did. Under Natalie Fisher. Right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she had a plan. But the problem is the real Natalie Fisher, she gets notified of the identity theft. She gets like a $400 bill from a phone company. And so Esther has to then change her first fake name, follow the Natalies here, from Natalie Fisher to Natalie Bowman. And so by this time, she had gotten herself into Cal State in Fullerton. And she got herself into Cal State by kind of charming her way into the debate team. And like, I can't imagine a better debater than a con woman or a con man. You can talk your way into anywhere. I know. And I think this is really where she sharpens her skills of how to manipulate people. I mean, not that she wasn't already good, but this is really manipulation one-on-one. She really does. I mean, this is almost like a class on manipulation debate. And she perfects this. So (laughs) what she does is she takes the SATs. And we've done like the Varsity Blues thing. She gets really legitimately high scores on the SATs. This is a... This is impressive. I don't want to... I'm going to come across like I'm super impressed by Esther, but I am a little impressed by Esther. I'm really... This is out of 1600 back in the day when we took them and she gets a 1400. Very, very impressive. She's She's a high school dropout. She's scrappy, man. We've looked at cases where people have SAT coaches and all kinds of prep classes. I know I had an SAT prep. I mean, this is a girl who just goes in with no prep and gets a 1400. Exactly. But the problem is she knows that the real Natalie Fisher is onto her. The real Natalie Fisher is getting credit alerts whenever her identity Mm -hmm. is being used. So she has got to change her name. The problem is she's at a point where she's applying to other colleges. She's taking the SATs. And she convinces one of her professors to write her a recommendation, but not under the name he knows her under, which is Natalie Fisher. She changes her name to Natalie Bowman. So how does she get him to do this, Laura? This is wild that she's able to manipulate a college professor to write her a recommendation letter under another name. She tells him that she's a victim of domestic abuse and she has to change her name for her own safety and she's so good she's such a good manipulator that he believes her and he writes this letter under another name for her to go to harvard extension harvard extension school is a little bit different than regular harvard harvard extension school is kind of it's also challenging to get into but it's kind of like harvard's night school in many ways it's really for working people who want to take classes after work I wouldn't say it's continuing education because I think it is a little bit more meatier than that, but that's the vibe with Harvard Extension. Right. It's not the same. People take classes at Harvard Extension. It's not quite the same thing as going into Harvard University. But she wanted a new identity. She did. And I think she starts to realize that the best way for her to be safe with an identity is to pick the identity of a person who is not going to be notified that she is using this identity. So she decides to use the identity of a missing person, somebody that isn't going to, you know, come back and wonder why she's using this identity or the credit. So she goes through databases 
And lo and behold, she finds Brooke Henson's identity and they're the same age and there are some parallels there. And so she decides to use Brooke Henson's identity, not thinking this will ever come back to haunt her, but thinking here's a free and clear identity she can use and go on with her life. I think she had planned to adopt this identity going forward and she changes her name again. This will be the final one to Brooke Henson. And she then decides to apply to Columbia University to go from Harvard Extension to Columbia. And basically, this will kind of be the beginning to the rest of her life. And so she applies to Columbia University. She gets in. (laughs) Uh, She gets student loans in Brooke's name. She even uses her social security number. It's now it's 2006. So she's in Columbia. She's living the life. She's got an apartment near Central Park. She's going to Columbia University, taking psychology, which I think is hilarious. But she's dating. She's dating all kinds of guys. She really has a type, and it's kind of military cadet. West Point. She loves the West Point soldiers. Yeah. Can't blame her for that one. No, me neither. And yeah, she's really just living it up. And nobody's suspicious. Her friends say she always had a lot of cash. She paid for everything by cash. And she explains this by saying that she's a chess expert who gets money for playing chess. She's a tournament player. So this is kind of before the Queen's Gambit, when we all became kind of expert chess players uh, via Netflix. I don't know that at this time people were as aware of people playing chess in tournaments. So, I mean, I think people believed her. Why would you not believe her? Absolutely. But whenever challenged to a game, apparently she would like defer. Like, right. You know, Although like, we do know. know from her brother that she was a good chess player, but yeah, yeah. she did kind of back away from it. But there's levels of chess playing. There's good chess. Pl- I'm an adequate chess player. There's like next level. There's next level. Crazy, crazy chess But player. I think that I know my school and stuff is just like, you don't question people being young and having odd senses of income when people are, you know, you don't know people's parent situation or people's financial situation. You always assume someone's on a trust fund. You know what I mean? Exactly. You, know. you, you don't, you don't know. But you know what screwed her up? It was actually trying to go straight and get a legit job. So Esther, or Brooke as she was known, goes and she applies for like a housekeeping job. But I'm picturing kind of like a nanny. Yeah, and that's very common in New York. Very common. Like Like you've got a Park Slope couple and they need help with their kids and their house. And But the guy does a background. Damn those background checks. Right. And, you know, they screw up every single time. The guy does a background check on this Brooke Henson that's applied right, for the job. He thinks he solves a crime. He finds a missing person. So he discovers that there's a missing woman from South Carolina who was named Brooke Henson. Same social security number, same birth date. So, I mean, I really do think he thought, wow, I solved a crime. I found a missing woman and he contacts the police. That's right. So this sets off a whole chain of events. So the NYPD... They contact Esther. NYPD, they're busy, obviously. She gives them a whole like cock and bull story about not wanting contact from her family, sorry, and like abuse and the the typical like I'm being stalked. That's why I want to keep a low pro kind of Exactly. But they do notify the police in South Carolina. And that's when they are encouraged to get more information from her. 
Exactly. Because the South Carolina PD, they've been searching for the missing Brooke Henson for years. This is probably the biggest, most horrible thing that's happened in Traveler's Rest since, you know, ever. And they probably want to finally nail their, quote, person of interest. Ricky, the ex-boyfriend who was was and is still the main person. Right. Well, but at this point... Esther or Brooke or who, you know, basically who, they don't even know who she is at this point. She, they don't know if this is Brooke or if this is now a person of interest. Right. You know, they have no idea what her connection is. In other words, they're not sure if like, maybe this woman harmed Brooke, took her identity. Maybe this is Brooke. They, they just don't know. But they're going to get to the bottom of it. So South Carolina police ask NYPD to interview her and get more information from her. They actually contact the family. And Sarah, this is when it gets really sad because the family, they're skeptical, but they're hopeful. Of course, wouldn't you be? Right. I mean, it's a young girl, similar age. Of course, you'd be hopeful. All these years, there's never been any physical evidence that she's deceased. Esther had really done her due diligence, and she even knew details about Brooke's family, names of uncles, and she was a pro-identity. This fascinates me, Sarah. Me too. Because the police actually asked the family to make a list of questions, things only the real Brooke would know. And 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 she was able to answer most of them. She was able to answer most of them, and they were things like, what is your brother's best friend's nickname? Like, really specific things, and it just fascinates me, and I wonder how she was able to answer those questions if she talked to them and manipulated other information out of them or deep social media research right i mean there had to be some way that she kind of gathered some information out we know she's not a mind reader so how did she get this information well as a private investigator i'm pretty good at getting information about people but this is really pretty next level these are nicknames it almost reminds me of the security questions you have to answer when you're signing on to online banking or something like right. that. Right, you know? but I think there are people who are that good that they can probably ask questions and almost manipulate information. So the problem was that the real Brooks on they give her a photo of Esther, and so she knows that it's not the real Brooke Henson. She does, and at that point, they decide the only way to be absolutely positive, because look, it has been seven years, and it's so at this point, they say, we're going to do DNA. DNA is the best way, and the NYPD requests DNA from Esther Brooke, right? It's getting confusing with these names, and she agrees, and Obviously, their first mistake is they agree to do it the next day. Well, you can't give a con artist a head start. Yeah. So she's obviously nowhere to be found the next day when they go back to get her for the uh, DNA. So Esther flees New York and they start investigating her. Like, who is this woman? And you're right. Did she have anything to do with the disappearance of the real Brooke Henson? Absolutely. And and it's interesting because when she flees, she's so clever. It's She takes everything in her apartment that could actually trace to her DNA. She takes her toothbrush. She takes her hairbrush. But she does, because she doesn't have much time, leave behind a lot of paperwork. She does. And when they look at the evidence, what they find in Esther's New York apartment, they begin to unravel the elaborate trail of identities. And that leads them back to Esther's real identity. I think they find a birth certificate in Esther's name, but they find really other disturbing things. So like we had said, Esther had been dating military cadets 
like dozens of them. And she's been asking them very probing questions. She's been asking these military cadets, these West Point guys, pretty probing questions about their training, about locations, about whether the training was based on a real thing that they were doing. And so this is sort of classic textbook espionage move. Yeah, this is like Matahari stuff. I mean, she's actually asking them to see specific assignments and she is really probing. And yeah, I think they're concerned that she is either involved in espionage or maybe perhaps will pursue that in the future. Or or involved in the disappearance of the real Brooke Henson. And so this is what lands her on the Secret Service's most wanted list. Yes, which I find to be extremely aggressive. But I think perhaps they thought that at the time. I don't think Esther was ever involved in any espionage. I think it's kind of a weak argument that she had been asking for some of these like pretty minor things. They were West Point students, but these were all just like exercises from class. This was nothing classified or anything. You know what? I just thought of this. You've got members of the group Anonymous who go in and they go into Secret Service and they they bust their computers and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if she doesn't have that kind of mind to do that type of thing. I think she's really brilliant. And I wonder if there wasn't kind of an information gathering, maybe for a longer, like a long con or... Yeah, I think she was like a sponge. I think she wanted anything in her repertoire, no matter. So who knows when she would need it. Yeah. So I think if she was dating a building planner or an architect, she would have said, can I see those building plans? Like just because you never, she never would have known when she might have needed that for a different con. I think she was kind of always thinking I might need that in the future because she was a master manipulator. I got to tell you that in my years of being a private investigator, every once in a while you come across a criminal or a con person, a RICO case, let's say, that is just so brilliant. You are like, this person is so smart, but they're also a criminal. They're also using it. But if they went straight let's say, and got onto Wall Street, they could probably make a seven-figure salary. Definitely. I just see somewhat of a double standard here because I see so many similarities between what Esther did and what Frank Abagnale did. And I see him as being really uh, kind of like a hero and we, everybody loves him and he's, he's personified as, is kind of like sexy, you know, the man, the man, and he has a podcast and he does TED Talks and I mean, I know some of this is because he kind of went to the right side of the law and now works with the FBI. But I feel like even prior to that, when you watch Catch Me If You Can, you know, we're all kind of rooting for him to get away with it. And he's charming. And Esther's kind of doing the same thing. And in a lot of ways, besides stealing Brooke's identity, you know, she's not really harming people in what she does. Frank Abagnale was pretending to be a physician. That's true. But I'll push back a little bit on that to say, I cannot imagine if you had a missing daughter and then you had some vague hope that maybe your daughter was in New York or you had found her. I don't think Esther intended to hurt Absolutely. Anybody. I'm not saying this you know. is a victimless crime. I think that's absolutely horrible. Absolutely. But I just think the manhunt that went on for her and the aggressive police search for her 
was a bit much for a nonviolent criminal, especially when we see so many families in cases that we cover and cases that we research. Who are victims of a really violent crime. Who are begging for the police to help them and can't get any response. And then we see such an aggressive. Yeah. I mean, there's private investigators involved. There's U.S. Marshals. It just seems extremely aggressive for somebody who stole $100,000 of student loans to educate herself. I don't think it would have mattered if she was a young woman or a young man. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It was pretty, pretty adenoidal, the response. Yeah, I mean, it was a a very, very aggressive. I mean, she becomes one of the top 10 on the Secret Service most wanted list. That just seems very, very extreme to me, like she's a terrorist or something. Right. But I think maybe the espionage or the possible shade with the real Brooke Henson's disappearance I understand what you're saying. Yeah, comparatively a little aggressive. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so yeah. So anyway, Esther, they they go back to get her DNA. She's out the door missing again. Yeah, she's missing for over a year. I'm not quite sure the period of time. Yeah, so she's off. She had gone to New Jersey. And then she, I mean, this amazes me that she's able to literally go out the back door when the police are at the front door. With her two shih tzus. With her two shih tzus. And like. (laughs) I love that detail because it's like, I just. Right. I mean, this is not, I mean, this is still the age of social media and the cell phone. Like the fact that she's able to just disappear and get away from the police so easily. It's astounding. So where does she wind up, Sarah? And, you know, I think they almost expect that she may wind up back in the Chicago area where she actually had a lot of ties, but they don't really know where she is. And it's a tragedy which will bring Esther to the police. So cut to February 2nd, 2008, and it was roughly around 10 a.m. and an armed suspect who was disguised as a delivery person entered the Lane Bryant store in Tinley Park, Illinois. Maybe Laura can describe what happened and the terror that happened. Yeah, I mean, what happens next, Sarah, is just beyond any horror that I can ever describe. When he enters the store, there's two employees and two customers, and he hurries them into the back, and he asks for the money and their jewelry. There's very little money in the cash register, as in any retail store opening. Two more women enter the store during this time. These are just two women coming in to buy a blouse. Right. This is an open-air mall. The Lane Bryant store catered to sort of plus sizes. It's It's a lovely retail store. They were having a sale that day. It's just like a Saturday. People going in to maybe get an outfit for that night. These two other women just innocently come in to browse, and they are pulled in the back as well. All six women are forced to lay on their stomachs in the back, and they are executed, Sarah. Five of them die, and one woman moves her head at the last moment, and she survives. This is just, there is no rhyme or reason. This makes no sense. It's yet unsolved as well, and it is, this this case just is horrifying. It's random and it's targeted at the same time. There was, it makes no sense. There, it was sort of a botched robbery, but why go to a retail store when it's opening? Right, when there would never be any money in an opening register at the beginning of the day. Nothing about it made sense. It seemed more targeted. They could never find a connection. So this happens. It creates, obviously, one of the the, the manager actually is, is does have time to make a brief 911 call before it's cut off. The police response is immediate. I mean, this happens in minutes. This is a very 
quick tragedy and the police response is quick the the perpetrator is gone what the police do immediately is i mean they shut that mall down and they literally start going everywhere in the surrounding area and questioning people checking cars just hoping anything might lead them to this perpetrator they're trying to see if maybe he had an associate or they're trying to find leads to right maybe left a vehicle you just never know exactly and one of the places that they check is a sleep-in motel, which is across the street from the mall. And they knock on the doors. They're looking. They don't know. Maybe this guy went into this into this. Maybe motel. he's staying there. Maybe I mean, you just there. absolutely yeah. have no idea. And so they they knock on the door of 317, room 317. A woman answers. They ask her for her ID. She hands them her ID. And this particular ID, which I believe is under the name of Jennifer Miles, I might be getting that name wrong, has been flagged by Secret Service. And lo and behold, (laughs) it's Esther Reed. What an astounding coincidence that she winds up at the scene of this tragic crime, just coincidentally. And they've been looking for her and this is where she winds up. And she wasn't even nervous when they knocked on her door because she didn't know what happened, but she saw the police activity. So she just thinks they want to see her ID, see that, that she's in the room and that's her car and is kind of surprised that she's that her, the name is flagged. And the name is, it, this is a completely made up persona now that she's made up and made all kinds of IDs that are based on this Jennifer Miles. This is not a missing person. This is a completely new identity that Esther has come up with. And so she's arrested. She's arrested and taken into custody. And her family is finally contacted once she's in custody. And, you know, they haven't heard from her, Sarah, in almost a decade. Mm. They um, must have assumed that she was dead, I yeah, would imagine. They yeah. did, and they were very, you know, even though they, they were hurt, they were very relieved. She was one of nine, so she had eight siblings, and they were very relieved that she was okay. I mean, I'm sure they had a lot of questions. But she's taken into custody, and she she's facing up to 54 years in prison for this these offenses, which again, seems very extreme to me. Yeah, it does. But she pleads it down to about 51 months, right? 51 months, which is about four years. She does about four years federal time. And she got out, I think, in 2011. That's a pretty sweet deal from 54 years to 51 months. 54 years. Come on. It's excessive, I think. So she is out now. We actually did see an interview with her and she's fairly unapologetic, I'd say about it. You know, I think that who knows what the future holds for Esther. I, I really think she is incredibly intelligent and hopefully she's kind of using that intelligence for for good (laughs) well i mean i think that the the main question you ask yourself is why right because she could have done all of this stuff without being a felon she could have taken a ged under her real name she could have applied to schools under her real name and and been uh, quite successful yes and no if you are a person if you have any kind of a criminal record that will follow you like glue on your shoe whenever you apply true but i mean i think it's a very fascinating now now she's a felon so obviously being a lawyer is out of the question but i don't think we've seen the end of esther reed actually in researching this case i did see that they are making a movie out of this 
Frank Abagnale made a career and has a career today as a podcaster, as a public speaker. It wouldn't shock me if we see the same out of Esther. Absolutely. And I just also wanted to say that there's an excellent 48 Hours show about where they interview her, they interview her family. Uh, there is also a couple of podcasts on this that are great, True Crime Brewery and what's the other one? Swindle does a very and good. And Swindle does yeah. an excellent job on this as well. And we want to give a shout out to those guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'm kind of, you know, waiting to see. I think it'll actually make a very interesting film. We want to let everyone know that if anybody has any information on the Lane Bryant murder, that it's an open case. There has never been an arrest in that case. Uh, I would assume that that perpetrator would have, we hope he would have mentioned it to somebody at some point. Exactly. Somebody knows something. And the Brooke Henson case as well, she is still missing. They sort of reinvigorated the case a couple of years ago. And I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but Ricky Sean Shirley took his own life right as that as that case was being yeah i don't think i mean i don't think that's a coincidence but that is is again another case that that is open and uh, if anyone has information on that as well but uh i do i think we're going to hear more from esther and uh you know that that's would be interesting to see what's in store and uh, actually, Frank Abagnale is even um, in the 48 Hours, and, and he seems pretty interested in Esther's case. Absolutely. So maybe we'll see the two of them team up. Yeah. <laughs> that would be pretty interesting. <laughs> I definitely think that she could, as like Frank Abagnale does, if she decided to get on the good side of the law, maybe help figure out some scams. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want her on, on our side, the good side. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Murder, murder, murder.